as the kiddos head out. We will be in Hebrews chapter 4. We're just going to focus on verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And before we dig into those verses, I want you to consider the fact that we hold most tightly to that which we value most highly. We hold on the most tightly to that which we value the most highly. So many of our folks are at the beach right now, so I'll give you a beach illustration. When the Broadways go to the beach, we go down and we set up our little beach empire with at least two umbrellas because we are a pale people and a blanket for the kids to lay out on and a chair for me and a chair for Meredith. The kids have a clear plastic tub about this size full of beach toys that we've accumulated over the years, stuff from the Dollar General, Walmart, uh, stuff we just found on the beach that we grabbed. Um, it's just a random hodgepodge of things to make sandcastles and little rakes, you know, the little plastic stuff. You buy it, it breaks, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we have a bin we keep of that and we take. Um, I usually have my Kindle, the original Kindle, just the classic Kindle, um, I don't even know if you can buy the original one anymore, but it's one of the best presents that my wife has ever gotten me a couple of Christmases ago. So I don't know how much it costs, but I really enjoy my Kindle, especially at the beach, because my idea of relaxation is just me looking at a book. <laughs> I'm kind of an introvert that way. So I'll have my Kindle in a Ziploc bag, a clear Ziploc bag, so I can keep it protected from sand and water and the elements, but still click the buttons to advance the pages. I probably have a hundred something books in that little thing. So I'll have that down there with me and uh, whatever other supplies, plenty of sunscreen. And of course, my family itself, Meredith, Elias, Lillian. Uh, these are the essentials when we go down there. And I'm sure you do similarly. So you know how when you set up your station and the tide begins to come up more and more, and sometimes it'll surge up way beyond what you expect and it'll start to wash some of your things out to sea. So if I'm sitting in my chair and just relaxing, enjoying the day, and I, I see that the waves come up higher than I anticipated, and some of my kids' little cheapo Dollar General sand toys start to wash away. I'll get up, I'll, reluctantly, I'll walk and go grab them. Now, if, if it surges up, and somehow it starts to wash my Kindle out to see, I'll hurriedly get up and scramble and grab it tightly. Now, if I'm sitting there and suddenly it really surges up and starts to wash Elias and Lillian out to sea, nothing will be able to stop me from getting a hold of them. Their ankle, their toes, their hair, whatever. I will grab them so tight it might hurt myself because I value my kids more than my Kindle. I value my Kindle more than the cheapo beach toys. And that's the way life is. When time gets tight and we get busy, we let wash away to see what we don't value and we cling to what we do value. So something comes up and your weeks gets crammed with a lot of stuff. What are the things you let flow out to see and just let go of? Is it your TV time or is it your devotional time? Ah, I got you with a surprise guilt attack from the side. You didn't know I was going to go there, did you? When money gets tight, your car breaks down or something and you've got to stretch your finances a little more thin than, than you anticipated. What do you cling on to and what do you let go? Do you cling on to the monthly Netflix subscription and let go of the giving to missions or giving to the church or giving to charity? 
See, when those waves come up, we realize whatever we hang on to, the tightest, is what we really value. And we live in an upside-down world where the least valuable things feel the most valuable. And the most valuable things feel the most expendable. It's easy to let a day go by without spending any time with our Lord and Savior in this miraculous word. It's easy to let that just float away while we're focused on trivial, temporary stuff. And that's just the nature of the world we live in. It's upside down. And so what we have this morning is a, a exhortation, a call to hold fast to our confession. So I want to read these three verses and we'll look at them together. This is Hebrews 4 beginning at verse 14. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I want us to to focus in on verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. That's the heart of this passage. That is the most important thing in this, these three verses. Let us hold fast our confession. The, that word hold fast is a translation of, of one Greek word, and it is a muscular word. It is an aggressive word. It's the sort of holding fast that you would do if um, all of a sudden a gunman came running in right now. And uh, came running that door and Rick and Tom and Larry jumped on him and subdued him. They would hold fast using this word, that gunman down until the police got here. This is the kind of word you would use if you were conquering another land and you're subduing it and you're making it yours. This is an aggressive muscular word. This isn't a light, easy word. Hold fast, hold tight. Our confession. That word confession just refers to the things that we've come to believe about Jesus. To the fact that we believe he's the son of God. That we believe he is our one and only savior. That he is the rightful Lord of our lives. That he is the rightful king. Worthy of our allegiance and obedience and trust. Okay, this confession is always a danger of washing away. It's always being pulled from our hands. So if we hold it lightly, we can almost guarantee that we're going to lose it, that we're going to let it go. So we need to hold fast. We need to hold tight like I would with my children if suddenly this tide was trying to carry them out to sea. The passage, the way the passage is set up, you have, that's the one big exhortation. Let us hold fast our confession. And it's sandwiched between two reasons why we ought to. So the first one is right here. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Since that's true, let us hold fast our confession. So, because we have a great high priest, hold fast. Now, how many of you were in Sunday school with Tom and Julia? A good portion. Okay, I'm going to sort of rip off a lot of what they did. That's why I set this up to where Sunday school teachers teach what I'm going to preach so I can plan my sermon during Sunday school. It's so efficient. Hold fast because we have a great high priest 
Now, I know high priests are to us an antiquated idea. It's not something we have any familiarity with. Um, You can get an idea of what they do in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, For every high priest is chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the priest's job is as an intermediary between the sinful man and the holy God. And they do it by, by making animal sacrifices. And the high priest was the, the holiest of the priests, and he had the, the most um, holy job, the most important sacrifices to make on behalf of the people. And it's saying Jesus is a great high priest. So since, you know, I don't want you just to, you know, your eyes to glaze over and you feel disconnected. I'm going to give you a bizarre illustration to try to imagine what it means that Jesus is, what this means by great high priest. So imagine that there is a new strain of cancer. Okay, cancer is the modern day plague. It's everywhere. It's devastating. Imagine there's a new strain of cancer. It's um, highly terminal. Nobody survives it. It's contagious. Okay, it's a contagious cancer. It can pass from human to human. And the only way you can get it, this is where the illustration gets bizarre. Keep your imaginations going here. The only way you can get it is by signing up with this new terrorist sect. Okay? It's this treasonous cancer that they've somehow concocted and they inject you with it and they send you out into America to infect the rest. So it's cancer and it's treason at the same time. Okay? It's lethal and illegal at the same time. All right? Now, let's just say you, in a, in a moment of weakness, you got the pamphlet and it sounded good. You joined up with this terrorist sect. They've injected you. You've got this illegal and deadly cancer in you. Okay, you will die. You will die and you're now wanted. Okay? So that's your situation and you want to be freed from it. Well, thankfully, there's two types of people that have come out of the woodwork to try to help people who have, you know, they've fallen into this, but they regret it. They're trying to, you know, make amends. So you have doctors who are trying to figure out how to cure the cancer. And you have defense attorneys who are trying to get lowered sentencing for those who have fallen into this. Okay, but they can only do so well. The doctors can only sort of help you with the symptoms of the cancer and the defense attorneys don't, aren't successful because it was high treason. So people are dying and being put to death. It's a serious situation. It's a serious situation for you. Now, here comes this, this man into the city, and his name is Jesus. And he's a doctor and a defense attorney. But he's different from all the other doctors and all the other defense attorneys. When you meet with him, he can put his hands on your shoulders, and you can feel your cancer passing through you into him. And he actually absorbs the cancer from you, completely healing you. He has to take the sickness onto himself, but completely healing you. And then after that, he takes you to the court and he's able to completely absolve you of your treason. No other doctor can do it. No other defense attorney can do it. But he can do it because he says he'll take your place for the punishment. So he takes your cancer and he takes your, your penalty for your treason. That's what it means when it says that Jesus is the great high priest. The word used there in the Greek is the word we get mega 
from. He's the mega priest. He does what no other priest could ever do. Those other priests, even the high priests, they would sacrifice an animal for a temporary solution to your sin problem. Jesus sacrificed himself for a permanent solution to your sin problem. No human priest ever has and ever will be able to accomplish what Jesus has for us. It's amazing to consider that Jesus is our great high priest, our mega priest. Considering that is what will enable you to hold fast. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? Yeah, John 3, 16 is the one that almost everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not die, but will have everlasting life. For God so loved you, he gave Jesus to be your great high priest. So hold fast. This is precious. This is spectacular. This is amazing. Don't just let that go. But it gives another reason. Let's read the end of this one before we go into it. Let us hold fast our confession. And then verse 15. For because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. So the first reason he gives us is because Jesus is able to do more than any other high priest imaginable. And now he gives us another one, which in effect is saying, and he's willing to do it because he's sympathetic. So hold fast because we have a great high priest and hold fast because we have a sympathetic high priest. I want you to get in your mind now your weaknesses and your temptations. Okay, weaknesses, that word is often translated infirmities. It has a very physical connotation. So this would be things like um, just feeling worn out or um, chemical imbalance issues that that cause uh, renegade emotions, the physical aspect of those things, or hunger. Or the physical response that we get to stress. Any of you have a physical response to stress recently? Man, you guys are really chilled out. I guess it's summer. Y'all are on vacation. Okay, that's kind of what's in view with weaknesses. Now, think about your temptation. Temptations are the, the bait that our enemy in the world uses to target us in our weaknesses. They work together. You know, you're probably not tempted in the areas where you're strong. You're probably tempted in the areas in which you're weak. So think about your weaknesses and think about what temptations you have a particularly hard time resisting. Okay, so if your weakness is that you're chronically stressed out and you're exhausted and physically you just feel bad, you'll probably be tempted with easy out sources of comfort. You'll probably be tempted with, you know, sinful sorts of eating that is just not good for you and it's not honoring to God. It's just to feel better for a minute. You might be tempted with um, inordinate amounts of TV just to zone out and just have a break from the way you're feeling. 
And you might be tempted to self-medicate with pills or drink or whatever. You might be tempted to find the, you know, even darker ways out like pornography and things like that. See how the temptation targets the weaknesses. Now think of, you've got your weaknesses and you've got your temptations that target your weaknesses. Now think of the sins that result from when we, in our weakness, cannot withstand the temptation and therefore we sin. Okay, think of yours specifically. Whatever it may be. You know, whatever you're struggling not to be ashamed of or guilty of or trying to hide from people or whatever it may be. Now, with all that in your mind, I want you to sort of, you have to imagine, but look to Jesus now. Okay, remember back last week when it said, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So you've got your weaknesses, your temptations, and your sins in your mind. These are the things that we usually try to cover. Now look to Jesus and know that he sees all of that, naked and exposed before him. He understands it better than you do. And what do we see on his face? What's his facial expression? Sympathy. He's sympathetic. It's not him shaking his head saying, what is your problem? You're still struggling with that? What is wrong with you? Why are you so weak? Look at all that I've done for you. Get it together. It's not anything like that. It's sympathy. Think of him hanging on the cross, bloody, battered, forsaken by God for us, with all of our weaknesses and temptations and sins. And what does he look out and say? Father, damn these people for putting me through this with their weaknesses and with their flimsy attempts to withstand temptation, with their sin, damn them. Is that what he says while he's hanging there? No, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. These poor people. They don't even know what they're doing. Do you ever wish... Maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt like this. This is going to be a super selfish thing to admit to you guys from the pulpit, but I'm hoping maybe a couple of you have felt this way too. You ever have a week when you're feeling particularly kind of bad physically? And you can try to explain that to people, you know, if you're feeling whiny or complainy, but you can't really make them feel it. And you ever just wish maybe there was some magical way that they could transport into your body just for a minute, feel what you're feeling, because you just don't think they understand how tired you are, how anxious you are, how depressed you are. Just wish for a minute you could touch them and they could feel it and then they would be able to understand. See, what the Bible is telling us here is that Jesus can do that. Jesus can feel what you're feeling. You know, the word is translated sympathy, 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But then he goes on to describe what we would call empathy. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are. You know, the difference between sympathy and empathy, I had to ask Meredith to make sure I had this right because I thought I was. If I'm sympathetic toward you, I care about how you're feeling. If I'm empathetic toward you, I feel it too. I have been there. That's why, you know, when someone loses a, a very close loved one, I can go and minister to them sympathetically. But many of you and many of our people, and I think of the Thomases and the Jamesons, they can go and minister empathetically. I've been there. I know what this is like. See, Jesus ministers to you not just sympathetically, but empathetically. He's been tempted in every way just like you are. He took on a fully human body where he experienced hunger and he experienced stress. He had the same chemicals in him that deal with emotions that we do. He experienced you know, desires. He experienced all that. That means, for one thing, the weakness is not sin. He experienced that. The temptation isn't sin. He experienced that. It's giving in that is sin. And he never experienced that. He experienced all these things like we did, yet without any sin. That way he can be a compassionate high priest to you. And some of you may have had a distant father and you kind of read that into your relationship with Jesus. He's not like that. He's down on your level. Hold fast because Jesus is a great high priest. He is able to reconcile you to God. Reconcile you to the people around you. Make you whole again. And he's sympathetic. He's willing to. He loves you. He knows what you're going through. He cares what you're going through. Now finally we see how to do this. How to to hold fast to our confession. In verse 16. We hold fast by drawing near to the throne of grace. Let us then, based on all that that we just saw... Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We can draw near with confidence. Have any of you ever, you've gave in to the temptation, whatever it may be, again, and you feel like you just can't pray right now, You can't just go directly to God now. You need some distance between you and that sin, like a waiting period before you're holy enough to go before God and ask for forgiveness. Any of you guys ever play those mind games with yourself? See, what this is saying is, whatever the sin may be, you just, you know, binged on stress food. While the spoon is still in your hand, the ice cream's still dripping from it, You can confidently go to the throne of grace and say, God, help me. I did it again. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you? I need mercy. I need grace again. I need you to help me in my time of need. You can go immediately, confidently, because your going to the throne of grace isn't based on how great you are. It's based on how great Jesus is. And he's sympathetic to you. He embraces you in that moment and says, I know, child, I know. We come to the throne of grace completely empty-handed. 
Note what it says. Draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may give some sort of gift and bring some sort of holiness. No, we come, we draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. We come completely empty-handed. We come needy and we're lavish with mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You know, in our sin, we deserve punishment, but God is so merciful that he gave all that punishment to Jesus Christ so that we could just receive forgiveness and cleansing. Grace goes a step beyond just not getting what you deserve and getting what you don't deserve. He befriends you. He blesses you. This is really well illustrated in, I never know how to say it. I think you're supposed to say it, Les Miserables, but I feel really pretentious saying it that way. So I think I've heard it more often said called Les Mis. You know, it was a, a book by uh, Victor Hugo and then a play and then a movie with Russell Crowe singing terribly. Maybe you didn't see it. But it's really well illustrated in that book. The, the main character, Jean Valjean, French guy, um, terrible criminal, dirty thief, awful guy, gets out of jail after many years and uh, goes and stays with this minister. Um, remember it, basically. Minister takes him in, is very generous with him, but Jean Valjean, you know, he's a weak sinner under temptation and he sins and he steals this guy's silver, basically the only thing of value that the guy has and runs. Well, the authorities catch him and they drag him back to the minister whom he was staying with, who, who he stole that stuff from. And he says, this criminal has your silver. So the minister is merciful. He could have said, yes, that's mine. Get him back in jail immediately. But he's merciful. He doesn't say that. But he, he's not only merciful. He doesn't, he doesn't just not press charges. He goes into his house and gets all the rest of his valuables and brings it out and gives it to Jean Valjean and says, here, you forgot all this. Take it. Be blessed. That's what we get. That one-two punch of mercy, not being damned forever because of our sins, and grace. Blessing after blessing after blessing heaped upon us. Why? Because we're so great? No. Because Jesus is so great. And he's sympathetic. And we can go to him. We can go right now. We can go... Right now in prayers, we sing our Come Just As You Are song. We can go today with each step we take. Even if you fall flat on your face on the way out of this building, you're driving home, you've heard this message of holding fast to our confession and somebody cuts you off and immediately you fail. Now, I'm not trying to encourage that, but I'm trying to tell you, Jesus died for that. For all the sins you ever did commit, all the sins you are committing, and all the sins you will commit, you can still turn back to the throne of grace. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. And, and that we could let go, that we could hold that loosely, that we could let that just drift away while we grab on to measly little pleasures. It baffles me. And I'm with you guys. I'm the same way. So today God's saying, remember how glorious this is. Let us hold fast our confession by drawing near to the throne of grace because we have a great and sympathetic high priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. 
Father, help us to keep him ever before our eyes. Never forget how great he is, how sympathetic he is. Help us to always live near the throne of grace. And now for those who are here who are weighed down because of their own weaknesses and temptations and sins and the consequences thereof, who are ashamed, who are guilty, who are all wrapped up and tangled up in in the ramifications of things they've done. Or teach each of us individually what it looks like for us to turn to you, to draw near to the throne of grace right now. In Jesus' name, amen.